Sometimes our travels show us what isn't right in our world and inspires us to do something about it. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, David Reef tells us about the multinational plan to end hunger and poverty around the world by 2030. The fact is, there are countries in this world that spend more money on debt servicing than they do on health care. We'll also check in with Gloria Steinem. She explains how traveling with her family around America built her confidence from an early age. She thinks we'd all benefit from getting out more often. I wish that every high school student could spend six months on the road and every political candidate had to spend a couple of years on the road as a requirement of running. And we compare notes with budget traveler Matt Kepnes on how to manage your money to enjoy low-cost adventures overseas. I think it's very important that people keep their hard-earned money. Get inspired to travel and make a difference in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Gloria Steinem is probably America's best-known feminist. In her just-released autobiography, she explains how her travels helped shape her worldview from a young age and gave her the confidence to tackle issues that upset the status quo. She joins us in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how traveling can make you into a solid citizen. And Matt Kepnes shares the basics for taking care of your finances on the road so that you can enjoy overseas travels on a budget. Recently, 193 nations agreed unanimously to pursue an ambitious set of goals. Their aim? To overturn the reasons many developing countries remain poor and deeply in debt within 15 years. The Sustainable Development Goals include restructuring the system that keeps millions of people poor and malnourished. It also addresses the cause and effects of climate change. Author and policy analyst David Reef attended the meetings at the United Nations in New York when these goals were adopted. He joins us now to investigate how we might expect to meet such ambitious goals by 2030. David, thanks for being here. Thank you. Can you explain to us what is this new initiative, Sustainable Development Goals? The Sustainable Development Goals are an attempt by, really, most nations in the world have signed on to them to end extreme poverty and hunger within 15 years of their adoption. This is coming off of some progress in this area, and, and of course the Pope is speaking out on economic justice and fighting hunger. If people are going to be hearing about this, I'd like to just uh, review with you, because you've been studying this for a long time, some fundamental concepts. So I'm just going to throw these terms out at you, and if you can just give us a a primer, just a a layman's understanding of these, so we'll understand the news that will be coming at us in in this issue. What about third-world debt relief? Why is that an issue, and where are we on that? Well, it's first of all an issue because without debt relief, without countries being able to spend money on their own people rather than service their debt. There's a poverty trap out of which very poor countries really have very little hope of of exiting. The fact is that there are countries in this world that spend more money on debt servicing than they do on health care. Yeah, they're stuck in this hole. It reinforces structural poverty. That's exactly it. Describe to us what cash cropping is. Cash crops are crops that are, you raise them with the idea that they're the ones that get you the most money. And 
The World Bank for a long time encouraged this, although I'm not sure it's quite as convinced of its position than before. So, for example, you might raise a crop that nourished people but wasn't an export crop, wasn't so going to... It wouldn't give you a good return on your money if you were a local... wouldn't landowner. give you a good return on your money, and to the extent that agriculture, even in very poor countries, is now run by big businesses with interests all over the world, they may not be thinking about the... And you don't have to create demons here. It, mm-hmm. it just may be, you know, the corporate board meets in wherever, in the global south or the global north, and says, but this crop has a... 20% profit, and that crop has a 5% profit. Well, obviously, mm-hmm. we as a public company want to do the one with the 20% profit, but that may leave a lot of people hungry. And that's the deep problem with cash cropping being, as it were, without limitations. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Reef. His book is The Reproach of Hunger. David studied this for years. Now he's a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. David, what impact will climate change have on the fight to end hunger? Well, climate change is the joker in the pack, I'm afraid. Even the people who believe that we really have a good shot at ending extreme poverty and hunger by 2030 will tell you that if we go much above 2.5 degrees Celsius global warming, all bets are off. Mm. And this is a view shared as again, I say, by even the most optimistic people about the sustainable development goals. Climate change is going to determine the fate of the world in terms of poverty and, and prosperity. It's as simple as that. David, what do you say to people who say, in regards to hunger, if you feed the poor, they'll just have more children? Well, actually, the statistics are all the other way around. It's prosperity that brings lasting reductions in family sizes. It's been true everywhere else in the world. I don't see why it won't be true in the countries where people still have a great many children. It's There are two things that cause declines in in fertility rates. The first is more money, people becoming richer, and the second is the empowerment of women. As with every practically everything else in the world, the status of women is the key variable Hmm. in any conversation about decent human societies, the end of poverty. And I've noticed lately the progressive charities and development agencies and so on, in so many cases now, they're empowering local women to make a difference. I mean, women should have the ownership of the infrastructure that development organizations are giving these uh, poor countries because I guess the women are the responsible owners. The women are indeed the responsible owners. If you look, for example, at anti-poverty programs in Mexico, There's a series of them. They've had different names. One was called Progresa, Progress, another Oportunidades, uh, Opportunities. The whole theory is that you give the money to the women on a conditional basis with their showing up in certain places and with their kids going to school and visiting physicians, etc. And the whole idea, people will tell you this very frankly in Mexico, was that the men will waste the money and the women will use it properly. (laughs) But I think if I can go a little further... I do think it's time for development agencies, international development agencies, largely from the rich world, from the global north, to become funders and advocates, and for the NGOs, the development agencies themselves, to be local Hmm. and to be homegrown. I do think that's a holdover of a world in which, if you like, the global north dominated the global south, and it's 
it's long overdue that really the people of the Global South, male and female alike, you know, be allowed to control the given, or rather not be given because not a question of a, of a gift, to, you know, for us in the Global North and the rich world to, to a little bit get out of the way, frankly. Give them a reason to work hard and be industrious in a structure that isn't designed to keep them down. Well, you know, empowerment is a cliche, but it's also a reality. You know, they know better than we do. And that's something Mm -hmm. that I think international development agencies, not to mention government development agencies in the global north, too often forget. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Reif, and his book is The Reproach of Hunger, Food, Justice, and Money in the 21st Century. David's a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. We're just getting a primer in the fight to end hunger. David, I have long sort of debated in my mind two approaches. I mean, there's the Green Revolution, and then there's the notion that the best way to control nature is to obey her. What are the dynamics there? Do we have an easy fix with just biotech, or is it better just to respect nature? Well, to hear some of the techno-utopians, as I would call them, talk about this, uh, you'd think there was an easy fix. You'd think that GMOs, or for that matter, you know, hybridization, sort of advanced non-genetic modification-based hybridization is going to solve our problems. The, The thing is, the first green revolution was a very mixed bag. On the one hand, the huge increases in food production undoubtedly saved lots of lives. I'm not, again, trying to make Mm -hmm. anyone into a villain or I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I'm totally unsympathetic to the idea that people work on development issues, you know, with some secret agenda to keep others down. I, I think all that's rubbish. But it's clear, nonetheless, that these brilliant people, Norman Borlaug and Swaminathan in the work they did on the Green Revolution in India, they didn't understand that the inputs were unsustainable and the environmental damage was too great. Mm-hmm. So at the time, they didn't understand it. You know, Swami Natan's very much still alive, and he talks about a second, better green revolution, one that will be less dependent on inputs. One thing we understand very well is uh, monocropping, no matter what kind right. of seed of germplasm you use, is an environmental catastrophe. We should have learned uh, that in 1848 in, in Ireland, I think. <laughs> in Ireland, precisely so. And the technical fix can't be the right. whole answer. There has to be some way that's simply less uh, resource-consuming. Yeah. Uh, One of the most educational experiences I've ever had, I went to Des Moines in Iowa, where Norman Borlaug is from, and they have the World Food Prize there, and they have a gathering every year where they give out an award, and it's filled with good people, a lot of scientists and biologists and caring people, and it's an amazing struggle going on. And let's just finish our discussion here with something that's uh, hopeful. In your book, you write about some examples of success. What about the Brazil Zero Hunger Program? You know, the plea in my book is really to remember that no matter how much business may look more efficient than the state, and no matter how skeptical, ever since Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, people are of the state, that actually, if the state is weak, it's partly just because it's been weakened. And that what's great about the Brazilian example, I mean, Brazil is a country of enormous wealth and enormous poverty, as you know better than I do, probably. It's also a country of enormous resources, including agricultural resources. 
But for decade after decade, huge numbers of people were both poor and hungry. And 25 years ago, and this isn't a left-right issue, this was something started by neoliberal governments and continued by the socialist governments of uh, Lula and Dilma. The state made a priority of there being no more hungry people in Brazil. Zero hunger, they called it. Zero fome. And it, it's a huge success. So it shows you what can happen when you really make it, when the state makes it a priority, where it's not left to a philanthropy. I think you could make the case that uh, even if somebody is motivated only by greed and their security, that a little bit of soft power and a little bit of creative government energy designed to help developing countries develop would actually contribute to stability and, and our own safety. I agree. David Reef, the book, The Reproach of Hunger, Food, Justice, and Money in the 21st Century. David, thanks so much for your insights and helping us better understand this ongoing fight against hunger. Thanks for having me on. We have links on our website for David Reef's latest book, The Reproach of Hunger, and the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. You'll find that in the online details for this week's show, and that's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Coming up, Gloria Steinem describes her itinerant childhood and how it shaped her worldview. Every fall, her father would pack the family into the car and they'd drive across the country in search of their next adventure. Gloria Steinem joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. For decades, she's been the public face of feminism in this country, and her name is practically synonymous with the political movement that has transformed the lives and roles of women in the United States and around the world. She helped launch the National Women's Political Caucus in 1971, and in 1972, she co-founded the groundbreaking Ms. Magazine. Her tireless work on behalf of women over nearly five decades led President Obama to recently award her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The title of her latest book, My Life on the Road, is not an exaggeration. I thought I traveled a lot, but Gloria Steinem's travel schedule puts mine to shame. Her book reflects back on a rich life of travel and the central role travel's played in her work as a journalist and a political organizer. It's an honor to have Gloria Steinem as our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. Gloria, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to be part of what is the first travel show I've been on. And, you know, how did that happen? What could be more appropriate? Well, it's great. In reading your book, it is clear you are an enthusiast, not just about travel, but about travel as a way to broaden our perspective and, and help us engage in, in the world. And you write about uh, the definition of adventurer and adventurous. Tell us about that. Adventurer, I think we know as uh, some the daring, attractive occupation, exploring. Adventurous, if you look in the dictionary, you will find it's uh, someone who takes advantage of other people for money and position. Mm. So even mm -hmm. in the words, there is a problem. So the road really is masculine turf unless people speak up and, and open it up to the other half of the world, isn't it? Yes, it, it has been, which is ironic because from DNA studies, we understand that women have been more likely to travel than men, but mainly because of cultures that were patrilocal. So women traveled to marry into other cultures. Otherwise, the 
road is viewed as too dangerous for women often, and there are still places in the world, especially in the Middle East, where women are not allowed to leave their own homes, much less their countries, without male permission or the company of a male. So it, it has been male turf, I think, in a literary sense, too. It's been male turf in the kind of Jack Kerouac mystique. It must have been so interesting for you to, to look back on over five decades of, of hard work and, and lots of travel. You, you wrote that for the first decades, your longest stretch at home was eight days. And Well, my longest consecutive <laughs> stretch at home was eight days, and that was a shock even to me. <laughs> you wrote that the road is the place you feel most at home. How can that be? Well, I, I had not planned to start this book with a chapter about my father, but once I sat down to write it, it was the first thing I found coming up because as a child, I did grow up until the age of 10 or so, most of the time in a house trailer. Hmm. My father was a gypsy in his spirit. He had a little summer resort in southern Michigan. But when it got cold, he immediately put us all, you know, my sister, my mother, the dog, and me into a house trailer. And we started to wend our way, working our way by selling antiques and jewelry and so on along the way to Florida or California in warm weather. So that meant that I actually lived most of the time in my early childhood in a house trailer. I understand from your book that, you know, he'd leave home without enough money to get back home and he would just say, well, let's see what'll happen. Mm, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, he, he, he really taught me to live with uncertainty, which is a good thing for a freelance writer to know. Yeah. <laughs> and he always used to say, if I don't know what will happen tomorrow, it could be wonderful. So he affirmatively didn't want to know what was going to happen. Oh, and that must have had an impact on it, because as a, a young woman of 22, you head out for India. And I found it interesting, Gloria, that you dedicated the book to a British doctor who, at considerable risk to himself, helped you out when you were on the road to India as a young woman. Mm-hmm. Yes, because uh, I, you know, I was partly escaping getting married. I had been engaged when I was a senior in college. And so when I was working as a waitress in London, waiting for a visa to get to India, I realized that I was pregnant and I was completely naive about what the possibilities were. I remember thinking I would go to Paris. Somehow I thought Paris was a liberal city, not realizing it was, of course, a Catholic city. Mm. (laughs) And I had all the notions of throwing myself downstairs or, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, completely naive mm-hmm. notions. But fortunately, I found his name in a in the phone book, actually, in the neighborhood where I was living. And he turned out to be a very wise and kind person who was willing to risk his livelihood by signing a, a paper for me to go and seek a, an abortion legally. And then he, he took a promise out of you, didn't he? Which I think is very powerful. Yes, he said, as I say in the dedication, knowing only that, that I had broken an engagement at home to seek an unknown fate, he said, you must promise me two things. First, you will not tell anyone my name. Second, you will do what you want to do with your life. So I say in this dedication, dear Dr. Sharp, I believe you who knew the law was unjust would not mind if I say this so long after your death. I've done the best I could with my life. This book is for you. I'm sure he, he would be, he would endorse what you have done with your life. But it's almost a, 
that trip must have been like a springboard to a life of activism because you were heading for India. How did India impact you? And when you look back on it, how did it make a difference in your work over all these decades? You know, I would I would not want to say that I knew what I was doing. <laughs> you know, right. I I was attracted to India in the same way that many people later were attracted to South Africa because it was newly independent and full of uh, hope and idealism. Also, my mother and my grandmothers had been theosophists, which is a philosophy which owes a lot to India. And there just happened to be a fellowship that a former ambassador to India, Chester Bowles, had made available. So it was it was somewhat accidental. And even after I was there for a year and loved it and stayed on for another year, I still didn't understand how much it was changing me or how what I was learning there would be relevant in this country. In fact, I I supposed it wouldn't be. You know, I thought the countries were too different. So, you know, somehow I think if we just proceed <laughs> one step at a time doing what excites us and interests us, it begins to fit together like a puzzle. You know, that's so true. You don't understand how things are impacting you when you travel. A lot of times I have to just take a moment and let the experience breathe and think back on it that evening and and realize, for the rest of my life, today will have had an impact on me. And I can imagine when you go to India, you think there's a richness there that that really rearranges our our cultural self-assuredness in a lot of ways, I think. And, of course, they had just managed the first big, big, big peaceful revolution in gaining independence. And Gandhi's philosophy was very much key to that and influencing the world. So it just took me a long time to to realize that what I was learning there about organizing, the change came from the bottom up, that the way you conducted yourself determined your ends. The ends didn't justify the means. The means dictated the ends. It took me a while to realize that this was true pretty much everywhere, and certainly in, in this country, too. So you were there and sort of in the wake of all the exciting um, nonviolence and grassroots change from Gandhi and India, and you learned about talking circles. How did that help you? Talking circles are, it's what our Native Americans base uh, government and self-government on. It's actually what our Constitution is based on, though I didn't know it at the time. But it starts with a group of people a group not so big, but what everyone can speak and everyone can listen, in which consensus and listening to each other is more important than time. Mm -hmm. We probably have been sitting around campfires telling our stories for all the time that human beings have been on Earth, so it may be part of our cellular structure (laughs) that we need this kind of community and we learn by listening to each other's stories. Actually, our brains are still organized on narrative and imagery. If you tell me a fact or a statistic, I will invent a narrative that makes it true. It's part of the problem with our media that they conceive of serious news as being only facts and statistics and soft news as being narrative. So I think it's part of the reason we're obsessed with celebrities, Mm -hmm. because they're kind of the only narrative in town. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Gloria Steinem. Her new book is My Life on the Road. Gloria Steinem co-founded Ms. Magazine in 1972. Gloria, of all the countries you've traveled in, for me it's really interesting to try not to be ethnocentric and, and try to get out of our comfort zone and learn from other cultures. Is there a country that you admire for their respect of women? It's not so much a country as it is 
a period of time in every country, which is sometimes still visible. That is, the Native American nations in this country, of which there were, you know, many hundreds before Europeans showed up, and which are coming back now in many of their original cultural forms. Or it's the Quay and the San in Africa, who were are the first relatives of all of us, of all human beings. Or the Dalits in India, who are probably the oldest inhabitants of, of India, because their paradigm of society was a circle, not a pyramid, not a hierarchy. So they understood people as being linked rather than ranked mm-hmm. and having a relationship with nature. Actually, they, their languages didn't have a word for nature because it wasn't separate. So it was just a profoundly deeper, more egalitarian idea of what, uh, a more personal idea of what a culture was. We, we think that patriarchy and hierarchy and monotheism are inevitable because we've experienced them in our childhoods, but they're all quite new. So patriarchy probably works better in a hierarchical society, and if you want to get beyond patriarchy, you need that circular kind of outlook? Yeah, well, I think the uh, hierarchical society begins with patriarchy, because the, right. the first hierarchical impulse it seems to have been to control reproduction and therefore to control the bodies of women. Before that, it seems, I mean, I don't mean to overgeneralize, but as far as, far as we can tell, it seems that women knew pretty well how to control their own fertility and decide when and whether to have children, mm-hmm. especially because groups were often migratory. They tended to have, you know, two or three children two or three years apart, when there was the beginnings of agriculture, women controlled agriculture, men hunted. It was just a much more circular, egalitarian, consensus-driven form. And if we learned that, I think it would help us because we are now longing for a society in which we don't see ourselves separate from nature and are less likely, therefore, to destroy it, in which we are beginning to realize how sinister and artificial it is to divide ourselves into races and to have the cult of gender dividing human beings. You know, I would say the Earth is now small enough and endangered enough, so we're kind of longing for Mm -hmm. many of these values and practices that were present for most of human history. Could you say if people just stay at home, well, I suppose you could say and just watch the news and so on, they become more complacent. But when you travel, you get to talk to people and you realize there's similar struggles and, and similar inspirational triumphs and ways to open up to this kind of... Uh... Yes, yes, certainly we, we do when we travel. I'm not sure that when we're at home we get complacent because our media seems to feel that only conflict is news. Right. So we're much less likely to get reports about solutions to problems than we are about problems. And issues are covered as if there were only two sides to an issue when there might be three or five or 12. We may get really embittered uh, and despairing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from, from just listening to the media. We're on the phone right now with Gloria Steinem on Travel with Rick Steves. She's released her first book in more than 20 years. It's called My Life on the Road. It's been called A Travel Diary of the Women's Movement. It shows how being on the road has made a difference in her life and how it can cultivate a more open way of viewing our world and one another. 
Gloria's speaking schedule and links to her works are online at GloriaSteinem.com. And Gloria, in your book, you make it pretty clear that one purpose of the book is to tempt us to explore the United States. You don't need to travel internationally to enjoy the value of travel. How so? What, why is that an uh, interest of yours? Well, I, I began to realize that we still had something of a national inferiority complex, or at least some groups in this country do, because whenever I said, you know, I was going to India or I was going to South Africa, people would say, oh, how exciting. Mm-hmm. And if I said I was traveling in this country, they would say, oh, that must be so tiring. <laughs> there was very little sense of excitement about it. Right. So, you know, this this book, although it starts in India because that was such an education for me, is otherwise about traveling in this country. And I hope that it tempts people to do it. I, I wish that every high school student mm-hmm. uh, could spend six months on the road and every political candidate had to spend a couple of years on the road as, as a requirement of running and really talking and listening, not just giving speeches. It's kind of related to your chapter on why you don't drive. I just love this notion that when you don't drive, as soon as you step out the door, the adventure begins. Yes, you know, I'm so used to traveling the way I travel that I was, I had already written an outline for the book before I realized, wait a minute, I have to explain why I'm writing an on-the-road book when I don't drive. <laughs> <laughs> and then then I, I realized the, the virtue of it, which is that if you don't drive, the moment you leave your door, the trip starts. You're in the subway, you're talking to a taxi driver, you're, whatever it is, you are not isolated all by yourself in this uh, tin can of a car. But you have to be a good traveler. I mean, when you sit in a taxi, you're observing and you're talking. What, what do you see when you sit in a taxi that, well, that you starts know, the it, adventure? It, first of all, New York taxi, taxi drivers in general, it's a really interesting profession because people are often quite independent. They don't want to work for a boss. That's why they're doing it. They are often new immigrants or perhaps people who are just hooked on this freelance profession have been doing it all day. They're really interesting people. Some of the best political advice I've ever I know, had I, I know from, what you mean. taxi drivers. A lot of times I think I'm, and when I'm doing my travel research in Europe, I think I'm cheating by just talking to the cabbie because it's so easy. But that's a wealth of information. And, and Yes, said, well, don't you find, yes, it's true. It's true here. It's true in other countries. Yeah, and they love to talk. They, they are kind <laughs> of uh, gypsies of the road. You know, Quite Gloria, independent, and also they themselves see a wide variety of people by the nature of what they do. So they're, you know, they're just really interesting. Now, if I was to step into your living room, would there be any indication that you're a, a great traveler? Do you, do you decorate it with memories, or is that something that doesn't show up? Um, certainly the, the objects, the things hanging on the wall, you know, there's a big carving from India, there's a photograph of an elephant, <laughs> there's a... Uh, African fabrics, just the origin of the things probably would betray a lot of different cultures. Cultures that had had meaning to, I would imagine. Yes, yes. One thing I picked up in your book, Gloria, was that the road teaches you how to live in the present. You, you know, for years, my friends would try to persuade me to meditate, and I 100% agree that meditation is beneficial in so many ways. I took two courses in how to med- meditate, but I just never incorporated it into my life. And finally, I decided that actually travel is my form of meditation because it does, like meditation, force you to live in 100% in the present. 
He wrote, it's right up there with life-threatening emergencies and truly mutual sex as a way of being fully alive in the present. Yes, I think so. I, I think so. You line. know, so what better invitation to travel <laughs> could you have? <laughs> say what you want to say. Do what you want to do. The revolution is right here in front of you. Right, right, right here in front of you. Gloria Steinem shares more about her life as a frequent traveler and her memoir, My Life on the Road, in just a minute. Plus, Matt Kepnes joins us to share pointers for managing your money while you see the world. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and we're on the phone with author and activist Gloria Steinem right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her bestseller, My Life on the Road, describes her adventures around America and around the world, and how her father nurtured a love of travel from an early age. Gloria, it sounds like you've probably spent, what, about half your adult life on the road. What's a practical tip you might have for us about how to make the journey itself more interesting? How do you deal with all those plane rides you have to take? Well, I think if you kind of look at everybody on the plane as a little society in which everybody's playing a role, and you can kind of figure out who are the business people and who is the flight attendant who has been doing this all her life and who is the new one. And people also tend to dress the way they are going where they're going, you know, so Mm -hmm. people in blue jeans are more likely to be going to L.A., people in suits are going to D.C. (laughs) There's even a weight difference. Have you ever noticed that on, uh, uh, you know, people going to California way less than people going to the Midwest? You know, I'm way overgeneralizing. No, but but I've noticed that. But just observing is interesting. What about, you've been in more hotel rooms, as you mentioned in your book, than the Gideon Bible. Um, (laughs) How do you settle into a hotel room? Well, you know, the first thing I used to do is turn off the radio. You know how they frequently leave a a radio on playing music? Yes, exactly. I used to just leap across the room and turn it off because I found it terrifically depressing. And it took me a long time to realize that since I didn't find a car radio depressing or the sound of television depressing, it was harking back to my childhood that the sound of the radio was the only Mm -hmm. sound in the apartment with my mother. So even something as simple as that can, if you follow it like a trail, you yeah, know, you lead have. you back to a discovery. I, I think it's important if you're settling into a hotel to take a moment and, and make it your own. Uh, pick up all the advertising, turn off that radio if you want to, and, and then set it up. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe bring something with you, a cup or a scarf or something or a candle. Yeah. Something that can make it your own. I've got a very old-fashioned alarm clock, and I just, even though I'm famous for packing light, i but take that along even though I don't need it because it, it's just mm-hmm. my... No, that's interesting. I think that's true. We need some homey objects. Yeah. You know, I could talk all day with you, but this book is really, it's a beautiful thing that you've done because living on the road comes with so many souvenirs, not physical souvenirs, but souvenirs in outlook. Glory, when you look back on your lifetime of advocacy, all in all, how's the progress been for women? Well, I think it's been much faster in a changing state of mind and a changing consciousness than I would have thought. Mm -hmm. So that now there is a majority support for all of the basic issues of equality, some of which weren't even in polls or even in in words when we started. Mm. But since we do have the majority, I would have thought that the remedies or the laws, the practices would have changed more. Mm -hmm. What I didn't account for is that we have a very imperfect democracy, to put it mildly, so Mm -hmm. the majority 
will is not only not always what's expressed, and also that the advocates of the old way of the old hierarchy are quite fierce, and even though they are outnumbered, quite powerful and often have access to a lot of political contributions. Yeah. So on the one hand, we're much further forward in consciousness than I would have thought, and the other hand, not nearly as far forward mm-hmm. in actual change of legislation, how money and salaries are distributed, you know, how our police behave, you know, the kind of structures that there's less change than I would have thought. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Gloria Steinem. Her book is My Life on the Road. And Gloria, you know, something fundamental in this book is just being a good listener as well as a good speaker, the people you meet, the stories you pick up in the travel. Could we just finish our our little uh, discussion here about your book with uh, the story that you tell so vividly about the woman with the big purple Harley motorcycle? Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, perhaps your listeners know what I did not, which is that there is in South Dakota this massive, massive yearly group of motorcycle riders from around the world huge numbers you know literally hundreds of thousands converge on these highways which are so straight and so such a grid from mountains to meadow and so on that they're recognizable from outer space (laughs) and there were a group of us uh, who had come to a native american powwow which was celebrating and trying to restore the equal position of women in society so I couldn't, I, I couldn't figure out why there were all these folks in black leather and tattoos and chains and nose rings and so on on the plane. But once we got there, we discovered we saw motorcycles around all of the restaurants and so on along the highways. And we discovered that there were, you know, this was this huge, huge global motorcycle rally, which I have to say, even though we were strong, daring women, we thought, kind of worried us because we'd seen movies, we understood or thought we understood that motorcyclists were maybe a source of danger. So when on the last morning I went into the dining room of my motel trying to be calm and open-minded in a room full of leather and chains and tattoos, I was totally surprised when a woman at the next table, an older woman, a biker an older biker chick, (laughs) came over to me and said, you know, I really enjoy Ms. Magazine, she said. (laughs) I just sort of couldn't believe I was hearing this. And that she said her husband also read it sometimes now that he was retired. And it turned out she had recognized Alice Walker, who I was traveling with, which also I never would have imagined. But what you're speaking of is that she looked out the window and pointed me towards a purple Harley very proudly because late in her married life she had finally been able to travel on her own motorcycle as opposed to on the back of her husband's motorcycle. And that was her purple Harley. She was very proud of it. And she said, oh, you should see my grandkids when Grandma rides up on her purple Harley. (laughs) It made me, after she left, I thought, you know, we all have inside of us a purple Harley, a kind of freedom. Yeah. And we have only to find it and ride. That is a beautiful, beautiful sentiment that comes across in every page of your book. Gloria Steinem, thank you for your tireless work. 
doing so much to make our society a better place for men and for women. Thanks thank a lot. Thank you and, so much. And best and wishes. And thank you, thank you for, for loving the road, too. Thank you. You'll find links to Gloria Steinem's website and her book, My Life on the Road, in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Matt Kepnes has written a bestseller about the logistics of making budget travel work almost anywhere in the world. A trip to Thailand inspired Matt to quit his office job and figure out how to set off around the world without going broke and without giving up the comfort of a good bed. His book is How to Travel the World on $50 a Day, and Matt joins us right now for some tips on managing your money on the road. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. So why do you dedicate so much of your guidebook about traveling on a shoestring to changing money smartly? Bank fees and ATM fees can really add up on the road, especially if you're traveling long-term. You know, my first trip around the world, I didn't know this stuff, so I ended up giving hundreds and hundreds of dollars to the banks, and that's money that could have been used more productively to travel. Hmm. And so I think it's very important that people keep their hard-earned money. And you actually track it. When you spend money overseas, you know what was the fee and what was the exchange loss? Yep. I track everything I spend on the road to the penny. And how have you learned to minimize your losses and what tips would you give the rest of us who are sloppier and lazier so we're not taken advantage of by uh, clever fee structures by banks that want to get a slice of all of our traveling funds? Yeah, so, so the first tip I would give is to get a good debit card. A debit card, you know, is the card that you use to get money out of the ATM. ATM fees can add up uh, up to 10 bucks per transaction between hmm. your bank's charge, the foreign bank's fee, plus the percentage loss in the currency exchange. Okay, Matt, two things here. We got fees and we got debit versus credit card. First of all, if I'm on the road and I'm changing $100 every day from an ATM, or if I change $500 every five days, I'm cutting my fees by 80% if I go bigger exchange every five days instead of small exchange daily. Isn't that right? Right, right. So, you know, it's better to withdraw more infrequently than always keep going back to the And just have a safe place to put your cash, but stick your cash in your money belt or whatever, and don't go to the Mm -hmm. ATM every day because you're going to get a bigger percent of loss that way. So if I'm changing every five days, the five bucks is inconsequential, really. But what might be consequential is my percent loss. If I'm changing $500, what percent am I losing? And does that vary from bank to bank? So that varies bank to bank and how good your bank is. It's usually a 1% fee, but sometimes it can be up to 2%. So between 1% and 2%. I remember in the old days of traveler's checks, I would literally go to four different banks and do all the arithmetic because I always my rule of thumb was no bank changes money out of the goodness of their heart. If they say great rates, they probably have high fees. If they say no fees, they probably have lousy rates. Do you still have that dynamic today? Yeah. Anyone that says no fees, their exchange rate is not very good. And you get the best exchange rates through either the ATM or using your credit card. So I recommend travelers try to avoid exchanging cash as much as possible because the more you do that, the further down the economic food chain you are, 
and the worse the exchange rate is going to be. In other words, if you are in one country and you change $300 too much, when you leave that country, that currency is not going to be good in the next country. So you've got to change into that currencies, and you've just lost again. So you want to go mm-hmm. to the ATM, get as much cash as, as you think you need, but no more, because you don't want to go to the mm-hmm. machine again needlessly. But if you do leave the country, you do have to go to an exchange desk and change the cash, and that'll be your biggest losses then. Yeah. So, I mean, I try to minimize that as much as possible by using my credit card. I see. Um, because purchases then get protected. You have better fraud protection through your credit card company, and you get a better exchange rate. Okay, so maybe a good approach, because I like to use cash, but a good approach for me would be to change what a little less than what I think I'll need in order not to have too much cash. And then on the last day, if I'm running out of cash, don't change for more, but just use my credit card to get myself out of that country. Right, right. And you know, the use of the credit card have become so widespread globally yeah. that very rarely am I in a place that doesn't accept the card. And when you use your, your credit card, you're getting a great rate and no fees. You're just paying what that costs uh, pretty yeah, much yeah. in that currency compared to your own currency. So there are many credit card companies in the United States that don't charge uh, foreign transaction fees, which means they're not going to take you know money off the top in addition to the exchange, okay, but exchanging. If I'm at an airport in Bangkok and I want to buy a Coke for $5 and I use $5 in local cash, it's going to cost me exactly that. If I just use my credit card, am I going to be hit with a fee on top of that, which might be $3 and suddenly I've got an $8 Coke, or is it just going to be a few percent because of the exchange rate? It's just going to be a few percent. Most credit cards now don't charge a foreign transaction fee any longer. So it's just what transferring from the local currency into your home Well, that's, a, that's great news then. And another thing I'm concerned about, and I haven't tracked this myself, but I think you have, sometimes you see a lonely ATM machine at a convenient corner in a casino or something like that. Sometimes you're at the airport and you want to get some hard local cash, and you see these freestanding ATMs that look like exchange desks masquerading as banks. Is an ATM an ATM an ATM, or are some of them more aggressive and others are, are, are more fair? Those loan ATMs usually have worse rates and higher fees. So I try to stick as uh, much as possible to bank ATMs. And do you find at airports you can always find a legitimate bank ATM, or sometimes do you have to go for the uh, the more aggressive ones? I can't think of an instance in which I didn't see at least one real bank ATM in airport. And you can just tell by the sign. It says this is the yeah. National Bank of Greece. Okay, I'll go for it. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. So again, if we're going to walk into a 7-Eleven and there's some random ATM there, you're not going to get a good deal. Matt Kepnes is the author of How to Travel the World on $50 a Day. And you can keep up with his latest travels and blog tips at nomadicmat.com. Hey, Matt, when you're on the road, when do you think it's better to use a debit card instead of a credit card? What's the difference? A debit card withdraws immediately from your bank account. A credit card allows you to pay, and then you pay off the balance of that card at a later date. Um, One thing I like about this more is it's a layer of protection between you and your bank account. So I pay you for that Coke on my credit card. If there's a problem or you overcharge me, I don't have to fight to get my money back because I haven't paid the bill off yet. So you have a you you go with the credit card as long as you pay it off every month. There's no downside economically. Right, right. So I mean, I pay my bill off every month, so I don't get charged an interest rate. So if you're willing to pay your month your bill every month, a credit card is just as economic as a debit card. Right, and it comes with layers of fraud protection yeah. that makes it easier. So why would somebody use a debit card on the road? What's the rationale? A lot for of people that? are just r- are really adverse to the the evil credit card 
because of the extortionist interest rates they're going to have to pay if they don't pay it off that month. Right, right. But if you are always paying your bill and you don't spend more than you have, it's no, good to good. know. And uh, what is the, we hear a lot about the chip and pin. You know, a lot of countries with more um, modern uh, banking have just the computer chip in their credit card, whereas we have the magnetic strip. My understanding is right now m- most American banks are issuing new cards with both the magnetic strip and the credit card chip. And in the future, mm-hmm. it'll only be computer chips. Where are we at on that? A lot of countries overseas, they use a chip because, you know, it's easier to protect against fraud because you can't, you can't duplicate the chip like you can the magnetic strip. Uh, new credit cards issued in the States do have the chip and the strip. But if you're traveling overseas, you can still use your strip card if you don't have a chip yet. I have the old-fashioned magnetic strip on my credit card, and I find for all the major purchases, it's just fine. But the, the convenience purchases, going to an automated gas station at 2 in the morning, you can't use the magnetic strip. You need the more modern credit card with the computer chip in it. Yeah, and I, I find it, especially around Europe and you know Australia, if you're wanting to buy public transportation tickets uh, right. with your credit card, you need the chip. So when you have the option to get your new credit card, and you can do that before your trip just by requesting it in most cases, it's good to get a modern card with the computer chip in it. That's what Europeans refer to as chip and pin. We've been talking with Matt Kepnes. His new book is How to Travel the World on $50 a Day. Matt, let's finish up this talk about uh, smart uh, changing money and credit cards and so on uh, while we're on the road with safeguards. What do you do before your trip to safeguard your bank account? So I once had my bank card duplicated in Europe, and somebody in Russia withdrew the whole thing. So I was left without any money. So luckily, I always have a backup. I have a backup bank account and a backup credit card. So in case that situation happens, I still have access to some funds so I'm not you know, stranded. Did you ultimately get your money back from that fraud? I did, I did. They, they did give me my money back. So the back. bank ends up taking weeks. the hit then. The bank has to absorb that loss. Yes, yes. Now, do you put a limit on the withdrawal? Yeah, so I also put a limit on daily withdrawals so nobody can take too much before I notice. Is that just a matter of a phone call or a visit to the website uh, and an inconvenience if you want to draw withdraw a lot, but something that should be routine for travelers? Yeah, it should be routine. You can go into a branch. I do it online through the website, or you can call up and just tell them what the limit is, and they'll set it for you. You can put any limit. You can say $100 or $1,000. Mm-hmm. Anything you want. Very nice. Matt Kepnes, I love the chance to learn from your experience, and congratulations for sharing it so thoughtfully with this very practical book, How to Travel the World on $50 a Day. Best wishes, and uh, let's talk again soon. Great. Thanks for having me. Happy travels to you, too. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. We can email you the dates and topics of our next recording session so that you can talk with Rick and his guests. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com where it says sign up for radio news. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks.
His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel, and his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.